So at this time of year, every year, obviously, this is a very busy time of the season. Uh, For commercial reasons, uh, for family reasons, uh, work-related reasons, we all get together with family. We celebrate the holidays. Um, We know that there's a big rush for Christmas shopping. Um, There's certainly a lot of purchasing of gifts. There are Christmas trees to decorate and, uh, and all those wonderful things that we get to look forward to. Um, But we also know that in the busyness of this season that the real reason often gets lost. And we often say, those of us who are Christians will often say that Jesus is the reason for the season. Amen? Amen. And we know that is true. Um, But sometimes we can say that and not really have our heart into it. Not really reflect the real reason why Jesus had to come. Um, Certainly I appreciate all the scenes of nativity and You know, the depictions of the wise men coming to see baby Jesus, um, those things are nice. Those things are great. Um, But um, they sometimes fail to remind us of the whole reason Jesus had to come. And put quite simply, Jesus didn't come simply to be adored in a manger. He didn't simply come in order for people to look at him and talk about how cute that scene is. He came in order that he would eventually begin his ministry live the perfect life, and then walk to his death on the cross. And that on the cross that he would die for the sins of those who would believe in him. And that's why the very most well-known verse in the entire Bible, John three sixteen, tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and that he who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so Jesus Christ came, and when we think of that scene of him as an infant, as a toddler, we have to remember that that was just the start of what would be his ministry of salvation for us. He didn't simply come to be an example. He didn't simply come to just help us to love one another, though that should be the result of knowing Christ. But he came because he had to die. And so we have to keep these things in mind. And as we even look at some of these very familiar Christmas passages, some of which were read this morning, I want to show you in the text just how clear the purpose is that Jesus came. Because while he did come to die and he did come to save us, there is even greater purpose than that. It wasn't simply just to die in order to save us, but it was to die in order to save us so that we would worship him. He is worthy of our worship. And I think the very simple scene of the wise men coming to see Jesus Christ conveys a lot more than you or I often see whenever we see that scene depicted. In fact, this past week when I went to the BCA play, I had the wonderful pleasure of seeing many of these kids reenact that scene. And I remember as the song, O Holy Night, was being played, was being sung, It was that very line, fall on your knees. And I remember seeing the wise men on this stage fall on their knees, and I remember feeling goosebumps and thinking that's what I'm going to teach this Sunday. It's going to be this need to worship the Christ. And so we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I'm not going to go through it in too much depth, but I do want to make sure that you understand some key concepts as we go through. This will not be the same length of sermon as we normally have. But my purpose this morning is to help us understand the true significance of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we may respond in the only appropriate way, which is worship. 
And the proper response to our Lord Jesus Christ, as we look at these verses, they're going to unfold in four scenes. Four scenes in which we will see the proper response to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at our main text for this morning, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, let's just go ahead and read through them. If you have your Bible, you can read through with your Bible, or you can look up on the screen if the text is not too small. But Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, we read, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which had been seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now we're going to take a look at these 12 verses. I'm going to divide it up into four scenes. And the first of the four scenes is the wise men's search. The wise men's search. Let's take a look once again at verses 1 and 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born In Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now it says here, after Jesus was born. So oftentimes we get this confused, thinking that this is the nativity scene when the wise men come to see him. But that is not the case. Um, Jesus had already been born. In fact, there's good reason to believe that he was um, perhaps as old as two years old at this point. And I'll cover that in just a moment. But by this time, Jesus may have been considered even a, a toddler at this point. No longer an infant. So it says after Jesus was born, and where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in the Hebrew, you know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. House of bread. Which is fitting because Jesus Christ would eventually call himself the bread of life. So the bread of life, the living bread of life, was born in the city called House of Bread. The same city that David himself would be born as well. And then we see Herod, that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now, it's important to understand who Herod was. He was the king, but he wasn't a Jewish king. He was the king over Israel, so in some sense he was considered the king of the Jews, and yet he himself was not Jewish. So how is it that someone who's not Jewish ends up being king of the Jews? Well, it was the Roman Empire that appointed him. He was a political figure. He was very good at playing politics. 
He was very power hungry and he was very good at protecting his position. And so he was elevated to being king by the Roman Empire, not by the Jewish people over whom he was ruling. But then we see magi from the east. What are magi? They're often translated as wise men. In fact, the original meaning of this word is exactly what it sounds like. It refers to magicians or sorcerers, people that would interpret dreams. Um, These were mystics. Um, But over time, the meaning of this word changed. You know, it's kind of like when when I grew up, the word sick was not a good word. If you describe something as sick, it was a negative thing. Now I hear kids saying sick, and that's great. Right. So over time, words change meaning. And the same thing with the word magi. Over time, it became really known as people who were simply wise, who were educated, who were learned, who studied in certain areas, including astrology, which is the study of the stars. So these were men that were considered the wise men of their days. These are the people that people went to, other people went to, if they had questions about life and they wanted to know answers that could not be easily answered themselves. So these magi, these wise men from the east, arrived in Jerusalem. Now notice they didn't arrive in Bethlehem. They arrived in Jerusalem, and at the end of verse 1, we see that they were saying. Now this verb, saying, it's a very simple verb, but the idea is that they were saying this repeatedly. They got into Bethlehem, and as soon as they, I'm sorry, they got into Jerusalem, and as soon as they got into Jerusalem, they were asking and saying these things repeatedly to everyone they saw. In verse 2, we look at verse 2. They asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, this is very interesting because they're not saying, where is he who will become king of the Jews? They're saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? The idea is that this would be the true king by his lineage, by his bloodlines, by his rights, that he had, an, he had an inherent right to the kingdom. He had an inherent right to the throne, to be king. He was born this way. So where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And for the Jewish people, they knew who they were asking about. This would have been the Messiah. This would have been the Christ. Now we hear those words, Christ and Messiah. What is, uh, what's the difference? There is no difference. Christ is the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word. That is referring to the king that would come and restore all things back to Israel. That was referring to the king who would come and make Israel once again an independent nation, a theocracy like it once was and not under the power of Gentiles. But then they also said that they saw his star in the east. They saw his star in the east. And this is one of these areas that people have speculated long and hard about. What is this star? There have been many suggestions. It's a comet. It's a shooting star. It's a supernova. There's all kinds of suggestions all over the place. And I will tell you that the way I preach and the way our church operates, we can't go further than what the text says. The text simply says that they saw his star. So we don't know what exactly this is, but we see that his star was in the east. That star didn't necessarily lead them to Jerusalem. That star was in the east and remained in the east, but later it will lead him lead them to Jesus Christ. But it says they came to worship. Now, why is that significant? Well, we know that we worship those who are superior to us. We worship those who we consider to be God. But the very interesting thing is that these were non-Jews coming to worship someone who is a Jew. These were people that were not of the nation of Israel that were coming to worship the one known as King of the Jews. 
And so it's very fitting that these men who do not belong to the Jews were coming in order to worship the king that had been born. Now, their questions, as they keep asking this question and no one knows the answer, it eventually reaches Herod's ears. Herod is the king, as I had mentioned. And as it reaches his ears, it brings him great concern. And that leads us to the second scene. So the first scene that we just covered was the wise men's search. And that leads to the second scene, which is Herod's question. And this is a question of great concern. Looking at verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, when he heard the question that was being asked, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, why would Herod be troubled? Because he was not the rightful king of the Jews. He had been placed there by Gentile authorities. But they're asking about the one who was born king of the Jews. And so he's troubled. He's troubled because he's worried about his throne. He's worried about his position. He's worried about his power. But when it says all Jerusalem with him, why would they also be concerned? Well, it was commonly well known, according to historians, and kids, you know what historians are, right? Historians are people that they write down things that happen so that we know what has happened throughout throughout history. And we know from historians of this this day that the Jews were expecting that their Messiah would, would arrive around this time based upon the prophecies of Daniel. They knew that Christ was coming. And so when it says all Jerusalem would be troubled, you would think that they would be excited, that they would want to be able to see the child. But see, the thing is, Herod was a crazy king. He was known for being paranoid. He was known for, for being petty. He was known for being harsh, and he was particularly harsh upon the Jewish people. He was so harsh and he was so crazed that he even killed one of his wives and two of his sons. So they were troubled because they were worried about what would come as a result of this news. And they were right to be troubled because after this, we know that Herod went on to slaughter children. So all of Jerusalem were also troubled. But then when we continue in verse 4, this is what Herod does. Verse 4, he gathered together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So it's very clear here when he gathers together the chief priests and the scribes. First of all, who are these chief priests and scribes? The chief priests and scribes are the Jewish leaders. These are the people who are working at the temple. These are the people that knew the word of God better than anyone. They knew the Bible better than anyone. And so Herod knew what what these wise men were asking about, and he wanted to ask this question of them. The Messiah. Herod knew they were talking about the Messiah. Where was this Messiah to be born? And then verse 5, they give the answer. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. When it says Bethlehem of Judea, this is talking about the the region of Judah. Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So when you see the reference to Judah, that's within Israel. And Bethlehem was one of the cities in Judah. But it says here that out of Judah, there would be a ruler. What's the significance of a ruler? Well, what does a king do? He rules. All right, so out of Bethlehem would come the ruler, but not just a ruler. I love the end of this prophecy when it says, he will also shepherd my people. 
What does a shepherd do? Takes care of sheep. Guess what the Bible refers to us as? We are sheep. And so this ruler, this king who would rule, would also guide us and protect us. Watch over us. So this would not just be any ordinary king, but this would be a king who loved his people. This would be a king who would be born um, to be king, to be ruler, but to be also the shepherd. In fact, if we take a look at the original prophecy, take a look at Micah 5, 2 and 4, and you'll see that the words are very clear. Verse 2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So even Micah goes further to tells us, tells us that this ruler who's going to arise is from eternity past. From eternity past. And verse 4, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. So you're starting to get a little bit of an idea why the wise men went to go worship the king of the Jews. They understand that this king of the Jews would be the king of all kings, the king of all nations. That the world and all the nations would be his inheritance. But there's something else I want you to understand. What you're looking at, those verses are Old Testament verses. Those were recorded and written before Jesus Christ came. And then Jesus Christ came and fulfilled those verses amongst several other prophecies throughout the Old Testament. Why am I making that a point? Because of this. This word that we have here is different from any other religious text that has ever been written. How? Because this text makes predictions about the future which are 100% sure. And the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ proved what had been prophesied about him. I challenge any religious text to prove that they had made prophecies that were later come true. Instead, what they do is they write about the ha- they only write about the past. They write about history. But this book is filled with predictions about the future that ends up getting fulfilled. And most specifically here by our Lord Jesus Christ. But now that Herod knows the location of where this Christ is going to be born, now that he knows that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, he's now going to attempt to use these wise men. He's going to use them, which brings us to the third scene. The first one was the wise men's search. The second was Herod's question. And the third is Herod's lie. Herod's lie. We take a look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Now, why would Herod call them secretly? Well, he would call them secretly because he doesn't want to call attention to the fact that he really wants to know where this child is born. See, he knows he has a reputation. And if he makes too much of a ruckus, if he even tries to send people along with the Magi, people will get suspicious. And it's likely that the wise men will not even lead them to the child. So he has to do this secretly. And he also wants to do this secretly because he wants to be the first to know where this child is. Because he has plans that are not good. He wants to kill this child in order to protect his own throne. But then he also asked from them the exact time the star appeared. Why is that? Because he wants to know the approximate age of the child at this point. 
he wants to know the approximate age of the child at this point. And this is what then he says to them in verse 8. Verse 8, he sent them, sent the wise men, Herod sent the wise men to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Yeah, that's clearly a lie. That is clearly a lie. And we know this is a lie because when we take a look ahead at verse 16, jumping ahead to verse 16 real quick, verse 16, the same chapter reads this. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. He became angry and he sent and slew, that is to kill all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. That was the reason why he asked the Magi, when did that star appear? He wanted to know the age of the child. In case he didn't find the child, he could just slaughter everyone in that age and below. And so we see that his request to the wise men was a lie. He was trying to deceive them in order to know where Jesus Christ was going to be located. Now, his response is not surprising, once again, given his, given his history of violence and cruelty. But following Herod's request, the wise men go to Bethlehem. And they indeed find the child, leading us to our fourth and final scene. The first being the wise men's search, followed by Herod's question, then Herod's lie, and then we see the wise men's worship from verses 9 through 11. Starting in verse 9, after hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which had been seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Now notice that the nature of this star has changed. It previously had been in the east. That's where they had come from. It had been in the east, and somehow that star signaled to them the birth of baby Jesus. But now that star that they had seen in the east is now guiding them to the exact location where Jesus Christ is. So it says it went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And I'll tell you, this is one of the reasons why I think it's a fool's errand to try to explain by natural reasons how this happened. Because this was a divine, supernatural occurrence. I mean, it's quite possible that this star was really the light of the Lord helping to guide them. Similar to the Old Testament, when you read about the exodus from Egypt, the Israelites were guided out of Egypt by a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. And so likewise, the Lord, our God, was guiding them to Jesus Christ. And then in verse 10, we see this wonderful expression. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, it's one thing for him to say that they rejoiced. And we understand what it means to rejoice. It means we, we're screaming hallelujah. We're expressing praise. We're expressing gratitude. We're feeling happiness and joy in our hearts. But they didn't just rejoice, but they rejoiced exceedingly. And they didn't just rejoice exceedingly. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is being emphasized a number of times by Matthew to show just how happy they were to have found the child. And so while these wise men were not Jewish people, and some people speculate that they were not really true worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ, I look at this reaction and I think, no, I think they knew exactly who Jesus Christ was. And coming from the east, they may have come from the area of Persia. Persia in the Old Testament was where Daniel was a prophet. 
And Daniel would have taught many people about the Old Testament scriptures. So they have clearly been exposed to the Old Testament scriptures. How much they fully knew or understood is unclear, but we know that here they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And here is the irony of this situation. The Jews who were looking for their Messiah to come were not here. But rather Gentile wise men were here, rejoicing over the child and ready to worship him. And then when we look at verse 11, that's exactly what they do. Verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Now, let me stop right there. There are two people being mentioned. It's the child that's referring to Jesus Christ, and, and it's also referring to Mary. Now, where Joseph is at this point, we don't know. But Matthew mentions these two, Mary and the child Jesus. And I want you to pay attention to what their response is. Because their response wasn't to first pay homage to Mary. Their response wasn't to fall down and worship Mary. But rather, immediately, what did they do? They fell to the ground and worshipped him. They worshipped our Lord Jesus Christ. And what did they do? They opened up their treasure and they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And by the way, we often present these wise men as being three, but there's nothing in this passage that says there are three. There's nothing in this passage that says it was three magi or three wise men. We often depict it that way. And the reason why it's depicted that way is because there are three gifts. And so people assume, well, there are three gifts. It probably came from three different people. Well, I mean, that's kind of a foolish assumption, but that's been the tradition throughout the years. It could have been two. It could have been five. It could have been ten. It could have been a whole legion of people traveling together. But what we know is that there were multiple, and they were giving these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, what's the significance of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Well, gold, we know, is a valuable metal. Even today, it's valuable. Uh, We know gold gets traded. I know when I go to my parents' home country of Thailand, gold is a precious metal, and and it, it symbolizes royalty. And even in Buddhist temples, they'll take gold and they'll smear it on the Buddhist statues. As, as an act of worship, as an act of, um, of, of just worship of these idols. So we know gold is a valuable and precious metal. Frankincense and myrrh are mentioned often, and, and these are basically gummy substances that come from trees. They come from two different trees, and, and they could be used for various reasons. They can be used as, as like a perfume or some sort of fragrance, but could also be used in um, embalming dead bodies. So it has various uses, uses, but these are very expensive substances. So the significance here is that they were giving as gifts very expensive items. They were paying their tribute with very expensive gifts to this king. Now, there are some who reference Old Testament scriptures. Uh, there's uh, from one of the Psalms, it says that, that kings will come and bow down and worship Jesus Christ. And so sometimes these magi are presented as kings, that these are kings bowing down to Jesus Christ. But Matthew doesn't call them kings. He calls them magi. So I do believe that the prophecy of kings bowing down to Jesus Christ, it just hasn't happened yet. It'll happen in the future when he comes back. Kings all over the world will bow down to our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are also references to people coming from all over the world to bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. So we see these kinds of prophecies in the Old Testament. And then we go to verse 12. At the end of our passage, we read this. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. 
So God not only led these wise men to the child, he not only ensured that they would be safe to return home, but God also made sure that Herod never found out the location of where Jesus Christ was. This was God protecting his son. This was God ensuring that the location of the Messiah would not be found. In fact, if you know the story further on, they even called them out to go to Egypt. God calls them out to go to Egypt. So what we see here was a divine appointment by God between the wise men and the son, Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned, that BCA play um, last week, the Brawley Christian Academy, and when the wise men bowed down to Lord Jesus, that gave me chills, that gave me tingles. Because that is really the reason why Jesus Christ came. Yes, Jesus Christ came, and you do not believe, you do not belong to Christ unless you believe in him. You see, Jesus Christ came that first time in order to die on the cross. You see, if Jesus Christ came that first time and he didn't die on the cross, but instead he took over the throne and began to rule in his rightful position of authority over the entire world, guess what? There would be no hope of salvation for any of us. Because all of us stand guilty before God. All of us are sinners. Hebrews says that everyone dies and then they face judgment. That is going to be true for everyone. And any sin that you have committed proves that you are a sinner, that you are separated from God. And that sin, it it, it requires payment. And it requires payment that you cannot pay except for all eternity in the lake of fire. Our God being a holy God, being a just God, being a perfectly righteous God, has to uphold his own perfect righteousness and justice. He cannot make exceptions for those who are imperfect, for those who are sinners. The only way that he could make an exception, the only way he could cover up our sins, the only way he could find any of us to be innocent would be for the perfect God-man to live the perfect life and to offer himself up in payment in exchange for our lives. And that's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so the blessed glory of our Lord Jesus Christ is that when we proclaim him as king, he is not king of people who are dying and sentenced to hell. He is king of those who will live forever in eternity with God in heaven. Yeah, amen to that. I mean, that should be a reason for praise to all of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God and the king of the living. And that's why we are called not only to respond in obedience, not only to respond by falling down on our knees to him and proclaiming him as our Lord and Savior, putting our trust into him, but to follow him as our king. Now, let me show you the end of the book of Matthew just to further reinforce this, because this passage came in the very early chapter of Matthew. When we go to the very end of Matthew, let's take a look at the last five verses, and let me just hammer this home. Verse 16, but the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had, de- had designated. This is after Jesus had already bore the price. He had been crucified on the cross. He had been buried. He had been resurrected, and he reappeared to the disciples. This comes after all of that. And verse 17, and when they saw him, what did they do? They worshipped him. The Bible doesn't allow worship of anyone else other than God. But repeatedly we see these 
these mentions of, of disciples and apostles worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ. It says some were doubtful. And verse 18, we go to verse 18, it says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them. And look what he said. He said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You know what that means? That means he is the king of kings. He is the king over all creation. He is the king of earth. He is the king of heaven. All authority has been given to him. And so what is the result? Verse 19, this is where we receive the great commission. This is where Jesus, after having told them that all authority has been given to me, so therefore, this is what you are to do. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, when we look at this verse, it says, go and make disciples of all the nations. Making disciples is not just a one-time thing. It's not simply just sharing the gospel. Oh, sure, sharing the gospel is involved because when he says that you're to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the idea is that people will come to salvation. People will come to believe. But it's a lot more than just sharing the gospel. It's a lot more than just hearing the gospel and say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus says this, teaching them to do what? To observe. Observe what? All that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you do not know this Lord Jesus Christ, let me tell you that these blessings, these promises, the idea that Jesus Christ is king, that's not a blessing to you unless you understand your need for his payment on the cross. Unless you understand your need for your sins to be forgiven. And unless you understand that the only way your sins can be forgiven is to turn away from them, to repent of them, and to turn towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And to turn towards the Lord Jesus Christ is not simply just to call him Lord. Because a lot of people will call him Lord, Lord, but will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But it's to call him Lord and to treat him as Lord. Understanding, just as the wise men understood, that this is not only just king of the Jews. This is the king of all kings. This is the king of all earth and creation. All authority has been given to him. You must confess that he is the one who died for your sins on the cross. And that he and only he could have done that. Take a look at just a few more verses. John 14, 6. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You want to be in heaven? That's where God the Father is. And Jesus here there says there is no way to the Father except through him. And then Acts 4, 12, Acts 4, 12, he says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You cannot be saved by your works. You cannot be saved by any spiritual leaders. You cannot be saved by any presidents. You cannot be saved by celebrities. You cannot be saved by any good works that you do. You can only be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. Him and him alone. And so John 3, 16, I mentioned that earlier. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What that also means is that if you don't believe in him, you will perish. 
If you don't believe in him, you will face judgment. Because when we consider this coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, remember the first time he came wasn't simply to be adored in a manger. The first time he came was to provide salvation, was to die on the cross for our sins. But that also implies there's a second time. And when he comes a second time, it is going to be to rule and to bring judgment. You don't want to be caught in unbelief when he returns. You don't want to let this life end without confessing and following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And of course, I have titled this message, Fall on Your Knees, because that's exactly what the wise men did. And for us as Christians, for us as believers, we ought to fall on our knees. Now, you don't have to do that literally right now, though you can. But the idea of falling on your knees, it's symbolic of this idea of submission and obedience and worship to the Lord and the Lord alone. It's recognizing his unique position, his unique authority. And the fact that only he was the worthy sacrifice for our sins. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're here, but you have not been in church, you know, maybe you're one of these that um, just has not been able to make it to church and you typically come during Christmas or Easter. Let me encourage you right now that Jesus Christ calls us to obedience. Jesus Christ died for his body, which is the church, which is us. He died for us to be together. He died for us that we would disciple one another, that we would be an encouragement to one another. It's not enough to simply just call yourself a Christian and listen to sermons on the radio or watch them on TV. I would encourage you to find a church, find a church that is faithfully teaching the scriptures that you may be discipled by the word of God and that you may be discipled by others within the body of Christ. It is what Jesus Christ designed for us when Paul even said that Christ died for the church. He loved the church so much that he died for the church. And his purpose for the church was not for us to live independently of one another, but to live together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So I would call you to consider this moment now as an encouragement to begin committing yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, not just in name, but also in action, in heart, submitting to him, worshiping him. For you, those that don't know, confess him as Lord and Savior. Confess him as the one who died on the cross for your sins. And for those of you who do know him and have been coming to church regularly, let this be just more encouragement of why we need to worship our Lord. How great our God is. And that even from this scene, as Matthew shows non-Jews coming to worship the King of Jews, so are we also non-Jews who worship the King of kings and the Lord of hosts. Let us close in prayer.